Coming live from London is our guest this evening. Welcome to this very special edition of the KJ Masterclass Live, the show which ensures that you profit from your time spent here with experts, either through their industry insights, information, or simply learning from them. And today we have Jennifer Style, an award-winning author, journalist, and teacher who lives in many countries. And more will come to know, will know about her straightway. But let's go straightway to Jennifer. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer, for your time. So straightway to the topic, you know, the, a lot of people, uh, you are an award-winning author, journalist, also a teacher. You travel the world, so many countries. You live in so many countries from Uzbekistan to France to right now in London. So we'll get all that experience in the form of wow, how exactly that can help people think for themselves to get to good ideas. So how does a lot of people nowadays struggle with to get good ideas for writing, be it a novel and uh, any book or even stories? What is the best way uh, that you follow uh, or in your experience, what would you advise them? Uh, for people who want to write good stuff, real stuff, to get good ideas. There are, you know, tools to generate ideas, but those are those are bots. I'm talking about human-created ideas. I have so much to say on this topic. I I can tell you what uh, how I have come upon the stories that I've discovered. Um, so my experience is unique, of course, but there are some some conclusions you may be able to draw from it. So I, you know, I had a master's in creative writing. I had a master's in journalism and I've been working as a journalist for many years in the U.S. Um, and actually working as a journalist in any capacity is one great way to find ideas because you are out there in the world talking to people about their lives and you will meet people who will stay with you and who will become characters in your stories and who will inspire you in, in all kinds of ways, infinite ways. Um, but I hadn't really come upon, so I hadn't written a book yet because I just hadn't found a story that was worth telling for me. I grew up in a privileged middle-class life in a small town in Massachusetts. And there isn't much I have to say about that and it wouldn't interest anyone. Um, so it wasn't until 2006 when I left the United States to become the editor-in-chief of a newspaper in Yemen that I finally had a story that I thought everyone should know that was incredibly compelling to me and I hoped would be compelling to others because when I arrived in Yemen, all the American media had told me about Yemen was that it was full of terrorists and it was very dangerous and I shouldn't go there. Um, and this was not what I discovered when I arrived in Yemen. When I arrived in Yemen, everyone I passed on the street greeted me with, I love you, welcome to Yemen. I mean, literally every person. And I've never felt so welcomed anywhere in my entire life. And when I was introduced to a Yemeni person, they would say, hello, I am Mohammed. will you come to my house for lunch tomorrow? And he and his family would um, welcome me to their home and feed me all their best food. And, and then my experience at the newspaper was also really 
inspiring because I had this group of Yemeni reporters, both male and female, evenly split, and who were not how I had expected them to be. Um, they were super ambitious and super uh, curious and eager to learn and welcoming to me. And, you know, I, I hadn't been sure that how the men would take to having a female boss. I hadn't been sure um, how much freedom the women would have to actually do real reporting. Um, but my female reporters were my strongest <laughs> um, and my most fearless. Uh, they had more limitations on them. So maybe it was just the fact that they had to be home by sundown that made them work harder because they were like, oh, I have to be home by sundown. I better get things done. Um, whereas the men had a, had a little more freedom to stay in the office till three in the morning. Um, so running that newspaper was so fascinating and getting to know my reporters was so intriguing. I mean, not only because of all, all that I learned about Yemen and their culture and Arabic and everything else, but because I was learning how the U.S. had shaped all of my assumptions about the world. I suddenly realized, like when I was living in the U.S., I thought, oh, I'm just human and I'm not particularly American. I, um, you know, I'm just a human in the world. And then when I was living abroad, I thought, oh, no, everything I believe is shaped by the country I grew up in. Um, and I was living in Yemen, which is a place that challenged all of my beliefs about the world and how it should work. It was a culture completely different from the one I grew up in. And so I started to question a lot of the things I believed and a lot of my own values and a lot of my own habits. And so that happened alongside learning all these things from my reporters. This experience inspired my first book, which was a memoir, which was just about one year of my life. So it's about the year that I spent as editor-in-chief of the Yemen Observer newspaper. And it follows, I mean, it's it's pretty funny in parts because we had a lot of like cultural misunderstandings. There were arguments in the newsroom. I made so many mistakes. It's unbelievable. Um, all kinds of mistakes, just embarrassing things that, you know, I... I just, anyway, I learned a lot. <laughs> um, in, fa in fact, I probably learned more from my reporters than they learned from me. Um, so I was both training them how to be journalists because they hadn't had any training and also editing their work and and talking to them a lot. And they helped me with my Arabic homework. And um, anyway, so that year provided great inspiration. So there were just so many stories to be found. And so one of my broader tips from that experience is that if you go somewhere, and it doesn't have to be a different country. It could be a different part of your own country. If you go somewhere, or it could be the other side of your city, for, for example. But if you go somewhere that is different from where you are from, that is different from the place that has shaped you and that challenges everything you believe and think about, um, you will have ideas. You will have no shortage of ideas because you'll be forced to think in ways you've never thought before. You will meet people who are unlike the people you met before. And so even that first year in Yemen, and I ended up living in Yemen for four years, that first year, I mean, I could write for the rest of my life about the people I met in Yemen. I could write about Yemen for the rest of my life. It's just such a fascinating country. Um, and I mean, my my since that book, my books have all been novels, but my novels do tend to be inspired by something that happened to me or by people I met. So my second book, uh, The Ambassador's Wife, was inspired by 
uh, an experience I had in Yemen. This was three and a half years into my stay in, in Yemen. I met my husband, who's British, in Yemen when I was there. I, I was about to leave Yemen, and then I met him and uh, ended up staying another three years um, and having a daughter and publishing my first book about the paper. And then I was kidnapped when I was six and a half months pregnant with my daughter. And that experience is the opening scene of The Ambassador's Wife. So I'm not giving anything away. Um, so the rest of the book is not autobiographical. It's set in, an, in a world I know well, a context I know well, but it's not about me. It is uh, basically the story of, it starts with the kidnapping and then it's me saying, what if I hadn't survived? That? What if I had been kept longer? What if I had a toddler that I left at home? What if uh, the country was on the verge of civil war? How could I heighten the stakes? Like maybe there are monsoon rains expected and it's going to close the mountain pass where she's being held. So, you know, I started with this one situation and then kept saying, what if this, what if that? And then that's how I, I carried on with that, um, with that particular book. And each book that I write has a different structure and comes from a different place. So my third and most recently published book, Exile Music, which I happen to have a copy of here. Um, Exile Music. You got to show it better. Yes, I would have come to that either ways, but great, great. That's such a fascinating story. It will be nice yeah. to talk about that. But right now, the ambassador's wife. Right, right. So, um, so that experience, I mean, that experience was also a bit about you know, white savior complex, which I'd come to understand better living abroad and, um, and, and relationships between the East and West. And also it's about freedom of expression and art and many other things that came to me as I was, you know, the more that you write, the more you, the more you generate ideas. For me, a lot of the ideas happen when I'm writing. I am not someone who does outlines. I, that's not useful to me. Um, and frankly, like I don't turn to technology for ideas. First of all, if you find something on the web, it's already been written. It's on the web. If you find an idea, you know, on your computer, then it's already, it's not your idea. It's come from somewhere else. Um, so, I mean, you can get writing prompts, which kind of start you in a direction, which can be very useful. Um, I use writing prompts a lot with my students. You know, it's like an exercise that I give them and I use them myself because sometimes just writing an answer to a prompt will trigger an idea. Right. Um, and so will, I mean, I do, every morning I wake up and the first thing I do is write in a journal and you can do that by hand or on, on your computer, whatever is more comfortable, but that's kind of my warm up. You know, I, I, that's my warm up. And sometimes things come up because for me, I'm often not even aware what I'm thinking about until I'm writing. And then I think, oh, that's why I feel so tense. I'm worried about this. Um, and then sometimes those things give me ideas for essays, or if there's something that's obsessing me, that's driving me crazy, like the way children's books are gendered, for example, you know, then I'll think I need to write an essay about this. Like that's what you do with things that drive you crazy. You write essays about them. Um, and then, you know, so it wasn't until, so Exile Music, which I showed you earlier, but here it is again. Um, right. this, <laughs> this was inspired by, um, our life in Bolivia. So we moved to Bolivia in 2012 and we lived there for four years, my husband, my daughter, and I. 
Um, and during that time, I met some of the survivors, um, the Jewish survivors of World War II who had fled to Bolivia in, in the 1930s and 40s um, to escape the Nazis. And Bolivia, by 1938, was one of only three countries still granting visas to Jews trying to flee uh, Hitler's uh, regime. And so I had been unaware of the particular situation of the population that ended up in Bolivia. There's not much written about it. There's some memoirs, some beautiful memoirs, including one by Leo Spitzer called Hotel Bolivia. Um, and I interviewed Leo for my, my book. Um, but there weren't any novels and they're really just, it was really hard to find information on this population. And so I thought this is a really important piece of our of world history. Um, it's an important story of a part of the Jewish diaspora that just hasn't been told. And it seemed important to me. And so I started interviewing survivors and conducting research in Bolivia and then trying to decide whether to write a nonfiction book or whether to write a novel. And I ultimately decided that a novel would be a better way to tell this story because so few of the survivors are still alive and they don't have memories of every single um, part of their life in the, the, you know, the 70 years that they, that, it, that have passed since they moved to Bolivia, for example, because um, people I interviewed were largely in their eighties, nineties. Um, so I thought I would be missing all these parts of their story. It would be hard to create a compelling narrative based on the, the pieces I had from them. Whereas if I took all the research and created a context that would be recognizable to anyone who lived through this experience, um, but my characters were fictional and their story was fictional, then perhaps I could create something that would actually move readers um, to, to understand what it was like for these Jewish people to land in La Paz, which is at an altitude of 4,000 meters, 12,000 feet. Um, and that altitude alone can be quite difficult to live at. And also what it was like to land in, in the middle, you know, you've lost everything. You've lost everyone you love, your money, your career, your home, your possessions, everything. You're, you're in the middle of the Andes. You're in the middle of cultures you don't understand. There, you, there's people speaking languages you don't know. Um, and I was really interested in exploring that experience. Um, you know, I think, especially now with so many people having to flee their countries for one reason or another, you know, there are so many millions of, of immigrants around the world. And, you know, the immigrant experience is largely inventing your life all over again from scratch. And, that's what these people did. And so I thought that was also an experience that would have much broader interest um, than, than just within the Jewish community. Just, you know, anyone could relate to this experience of, of loss and change. Um, so, so that was, you know, these things I stumble upon. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I do get to switch countries every few years, largely because of my husband's job. He's a British diplomat. Um, and putting myself in these foreign cultures is what often gives me some fantastic ideas. I already have a, I'm already working on a novel that's set in Uzbekistan, which is where my husband is currently based. Um, so, so that's, I mean, a lot of my advice says, you know, go somewhere that challenges you, you'll, you'll meet interesting people. I mean, I also, you can sit in an outdoor cafe and eavesdrop on people and, think, I wonder who these people are. You can look at them and make up stories about them. Like, what if this woman 
is, you know, carrying on a secret life and, you know, the person across from her doesn't know about it. And she's, and then you can kind of go from there. Um, so a lot of it's, it's observing the world and observing the people around you and looking at the person across from you on the tube or the subway or passing you on the street and thinking, where did they just come from? Where are they going? <laughs> Who are they meeting? What are they upset about? Um, and, and going from there, I think the world just gives infinite opportunities for ideas. It, it rains ideas on us, especially in London where it rains everything, but ideas as well, <laughs> as well as everything else. Right, 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 Jennifer. But then a lot of people can get overwhelmed. When it rains, you don't know which drop to drink. In the same yeah. way, you know, in right. the same way, in the same way, when there are so much of things that you see, you just don't know how to pick things and weave them into an idea and then into a story, a larger format story, like you did. How does one uh, know firstly that this is an idea worth going for? See, for this book, Exile Music, you've got lots of uh, awards, international awards, you know, and and also even, even the Jerusalem Post has called it one of the best novels that they have read in a long time. And the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle they wrote, in a sea of Holocaust literature, exile music stands out as a wholly original and engaging. But you don't know these things when you begin to start with an idea. Otherwise, you'll never be able to write if you think about these things. What will the novel do? So what is it that you would want to tell people? How should they go about choosing their idea? And then about... Uh, doing the research to expand that idea. It was not easy for you. You see, you met people, you met those musicians who fled to, uh, from Vienna in 1939 to seek refuge in the Bolivian Andes. Mm -hmm. But then how do you actually translate that into words? It is not an easy thing to do that, uh, that much of research. People get scared. It's a lot of people find, want to find the easy way out. So several things I've asked you, but just to let you answer at your own pace, how does one get down to the nitty gritties of actually writing something original? Right. You need to make a lot of mistakes. Um, you need to have a lot of false starts. So, I mean, the important thing is to keep writing and exploring your ideas through writing and be willing to write things that you're going to throw away. I mean, I always write for every book that I've written, I've probably got um, three times as much material as I end up using. So, you know, a lot of the times, for example, with Exile Music, I didn't know how I was going to structure it. Um, so in terms of, of coming up with structure, I don't think about that first. I think about where do I want to start? And for me, I started with two small girls inventing an imaginary world in Vienna. And I started with this scene because I thought if I were a small girl in Vienna while the Nazis were closing in on me and my family, I would need an imaginary world. Um, and this world was inspired by my daughter. So um, I stole the idea from her. I'm no longer allowed to steal ideas from my daughter, but I, when she was younger, she was helpless. Um, so, so I started with that scene and just the relationship between the girls and, and it grew from there. And then I thought, well, what happens to their relationship? And then I thought, what's going on around them in 1938? 
Um, you know, what rules are coming into place to restrict the movement of Jews? What, you know, what things are affecting their friendship? One of them's not Jewish, one of them is. So, um, so again, it's, it says, what if things? And so I, I started with a character and a relationship and went from there. Um, but not until I had an entire draft of the novel um, and I was discussing it with my editor at Viking, um, did we start to talk about, okay, well, structurally, how do we manage time in this book? Because it covers a long time period. It covers from 1920s through the 1960s, really. Um, and I thought, well, it's a musical book. It's about a family of musicians. I would like to structure it in a way that makes sense musically. And so it turns out I'd written a lot about Mahler. I'd read a lot of biographies of Mahler and I'll talk more about research in a second, but um, Mahler wrote a symphony, one of the few that has six acts, um, his third symphony. And so I thought, actually I've got six sections to this book. And so why don't I section it as, as Mahler's sixth symphony? And then I added an overture in the beginning um, so that there's a musical form to it. So that's the form, kind of the book creates the form. So the, the, the topic I was writing about, the, it, it suggested a shape for it. Whereas The Ambassador's Wife, I wrote completely differently. I wrote it in tiny scenes. So I tend to write in short bursts rather than long extended periods, which I also find much easier. Um, if, if you can give yourself permission, just say, I'm gonna sit down for half an hour. It's much easier because how, how many times do any of us have three hours to sit down? I mean, unless we're independently wealthy or we have a partner who is, we can't do that. You know, we have to fit it in before our family wakes up or after they're in bed or, you know, before or after work or at lunch break or whenever. But it's much easier to fit in half an hour and half an hour is add up if you do them regularly and it's less intimidating. So, I mean, my, my main thing is just write regularly and, and you know, start with what is most compelling to you and just see where that goes. Um, research can also help take you in interesting directions. So, for example, when I was when I started writing my book, I thought, okay, I've got this girl, I've got her friend. What are her? What does her family do? Who are her parents? And so I started researching what kinds of jobs musicians would be able to do in Vienna in the 1930s. And I decided her father was going to be a viola player with the Vienna Philharmonic. And then I started researching the Vienna Philharmonic because I needed to know a lot about that if I was going to have a character who worked for them. And I actually visited Vienna, went to the Philharmonic, you know, went through archives about their history. And I found out all kinds of things I did not know. For example, they continued to employ Nazis until 1967, which shocked me and horrified me. And I read about the 13 Jewish musicians that they had expelled and many of whom were sent to their deaths or into exile. Um, and I wanted the names of those musicians to be remembered. And so these are things that came up as part of my research. And I thought, okay, those names are gonna be in my books somewhere. I don't want those people to fade from our collective memory. Um, I want it to be mentioned that this orchestra um, sent all these Jewish musicians to their death. I want, I want that to be more broadly known. Um, so that came up and then I thought, okay, I researched what they were performing. So they were performing Mahler, they were performing um, uh, Strauss, of course, they were, um, they were performing um, uh, people whose names are escaping me right now. Um, but so I, I researched all those composers, but then not just classical music because 
my child would have been listening to whatever children listened to at the time, which was My Gorilla Has a Villa at the Zoo, which is a song from the 1920s, or My Little Green Cactus. And I interviewed a pianist who works for the Max Robb Orchestra, which only does music from the 1920s. And that was really informative. So everything led me somewhere else. And so then I started researching opera when I decided my mother was going to be an opera singer. And in this book, um, in Exile Music, every opera that I mention is an opera that was performed on the date that I say it was performed with the cast that I say performed it, with the only exception being my character. <laughs> Somehow she was in there too. Um, but it was really important to me that I got as many of the context details correct as possible so that people would buy it. I mean, believe it. By buy it, I mean, you know, would believe right. that it was a, a real world and these were things were really happening to people. And so when I described, for example, Kristallnacht, like there's certain, there were certain events I could not avoid mentioning because they were big, like the night that all the synagogues were burned and all the shop windows were broken, the Jewish shop windows, and um, so many people died. Um, and I had to read whole books on Kristallnacht and from different points of, of view and different Jewish experiences of, of that night. Um, and I, you know, in Vienna, I took a tour of the former Jewish areas and the current Jewish areas. And um, because my characters, when they eventually fled, they fled from Genoa because there were some ships going from Genoa to South America. And so I had created a fictional ship because there wasn't an actual one that left at the right time for my narrative. So I had to invent one, um, but it was based on real ships. And I went to Genoa because I needed to see what my characters saw when they left Europe for the last time. I wanted to know what the shoreline looked like from the sea. And so I went to Genoa and I got on a boat and went out to sea and looked back at Genoa and imagined you know, that that was the last time I was ever gonna see Europe. And that was important for me, like emotionally to me, emotionally put myself in the shoes of my characters. Um, and go the places they did. Now, again, not everyone can do this. Um, and I would like to point out that not all books require research. If you're writing a book that say is about a family and it takes place in somewhere you know really well, then you don't have to do all that research. I did all this research because this entire book is, there's not a single English speaking character. I mean, the book is written in English, but they are German and Spanish speaking and Imra speaking characters. Um, and they come from cultures which are not my own. So I had to research intensively and then have people from those cultures read the book to make sure that I hadn't gotten anything wrong. Um, whereas if you're writing something that's closer to your experience, you know, or, or is about relationship dynamics or a marriage or a family or a, the loss of a child, um, then you may not have to research as much. Um, so, so people don't need to feel intimidated. It is okay to write something closer to home if you have something you feel is unique to say about it or a character that you feel is compelling or a situation that that intrigues you. Um, so, I mean, in, in terms of just briefly other research, so there was the musical research, um, there was the research in Bolivia about what, what life was like in the 40s, finding out like what kinds of food were available, like what kinds of things would be in the shop, what kinds of things they wouldn't be able to get, what kinds of things were special treats, the canned foods were fancy, you know, were special. Like it was canned foods, you, you wanted them because they were, you know, they lasted. <laughs> you could keep right. them in 
safe and high altitude, whereas sometimes it was hard to get butter or, you know, there wasn't much refrigeration. And so things like that, it was, that was hard, like to find out, you know, I have this mother becomes a, a cook and I was researching, how would you cook in 1940 at, you know, at altitude in La Paz. And that took so much, that took days of watching YouTube videos on how a kerosene burner works, you know, and, and uh, you know, which was not my most interesting research, but it was important again, that she'd be cooking the way people actually cooked back then. Right, right. Now, while writing all this stuff, researching all this stuff, Jennifer, uh, it is so much a painstaking work. Now, what was it that motivated you to just write this book? Obviously, as I said, you did not know how it would turn out to be. Maximum, it will get published. And what about other people? What is it that can motivate them to write something good? What is it? Uh, because, you see, you had were also traveling between several locations and you, uh, something could have changed any time. That whole plot would have, then you would have to stay alone and do all that thing alone. And then your life is also going through its own challenges. Uh, you have to deal with them. You have to make sure that the family is fine. Everything is fine. And amidst all these things, you have to have enough motivation. You've got to give enough time. You've got to go to different places to do the research. What is it that motivated you? And what is it that others can use as a motivation when they are writing something, even though they have the easier way of looking at other topics which are not as difficult or as so much of research that would be needed? I think I tend to write about uh, two things, maybe. So stories that fascinate me, that, that compel me. So... Um, and also my obsessions. So a lot of times, you know, take a look. What are you obsessed with? What bothers you? What do you find your brain turning to again and again? Why does your brain do that? Why are you interested in that? Maybe you should look into that a little further. I mean, because you want something that you care about. You know, you don't want to tell a story that you don't care about. Otherwise, it won't be good. <laughs> you have to actually write about something that matters to you that feels like you desperately need to communicate. And I wrote Exile Music because no one else had. Um, and it was a story that had to be told. And I mean, I. so there were two people that were huge inspirations and it, it was largely because of them that I wrote this book. And the first one was a man who was born in Vienna, moved to Bolivia when he was eight years old. His name was Wilhelm Wiener. In Bolivia, he became Guillermo Wiener. Um, and he became fully Bolivian, rejected Austria because Austria had rejected him um, and loved Bolivia, came to embrace it. And I was very interested in his experience of growing up in Bolivia as a, an Austrian Jewish kid, um, how he learned Spanish, how he acclimated, how he made his career. He, be he became the owner of several movie theaters and the head of the cinematographers club. Um, so he was a fascinating person. And he still, when I would talk to him about the Holocaust, he, he would, he was 83 when I interviewed him and he was, he would weep and just say, I just don't understand. There's no way for me ever to understand. Um, and so it's very present, you know, he was still living with it. And 
his experience had not been told in English at any rate. And I met um, a friend of his um, who actually, who introduced me to Guillermo was a man named John Galerter, whose family came from Poland, um, a part of Poland that was also part of Ukraine, then part of USSR, then part of Ukraine again. Um, and, and John, my friend was born in Bolivia the, when after his parents lost their two-year-old daughter and their parents in, uh, to the Germans and Ukrainians. Um, they fled to Bolivia. And so John's family story inspired me. And it was John's daughter, so third generation Holocaust survivor, who said to me, I'm so relieved that you wrote this book because now I don't have to. <laughs> you know, because, you know, not everybody is a writer. Not everybody wants to tell the story of what's happened to, to their. So not all the people who survived this experience want to write about it. Um, and so now that this story is out there in the world, you know, some people, some people have communicated to me that they find this relaxing. It's finally been told. Um, so that was one thing that motivated me was that, you know, it's not my story. It wasn't my obsession until I discovered this population. But then I thought someone has to write about this. Why not me? <laughs> no one else is doing it. Um, and also just because I found the stories compelling and because I'm interested in the, because I move countries all the time, this is something, here's something else that I find that moves me, motivates me, is that I am constantly living between things, between cultures, between countries. I'm always living in places where I don't really belong, um, where I'm from somewhere else. Um, and I'm interested in that experience of recreating yourself in new places um, because new places can't help but force us to recreate ourselves and we become different people in each place we live. Um, and so that interested me, the process, like I mentioned earlier, the process of being an immigrant um, uh, or a traveler or whatever you are um, and, and ending up somewhere either by choice or necessity that is unlike where you came from. So that is motivating to me. Um, but in a completely different way, um, there are things that, have come to bother me for many years or obsess me for many years, gender inequality, things like that. Um, and those kind of obsessions drive me to write more nonfiction pieces. So things that I wish would be addressed somehow by our governments, our societies, whatever. Um, and um, right now, the reason I'm in London and not with my family in, in Tashkent, Uzbekistan is that I'm going through treatment for ovarian cancer. And my second thought after diagnosis was, I really don't want to write a cancer memoir. Um, there's so many good ones and uh, it wasn't what I wanted to write about. And yet every morning I get up and I write about my experience because I don't actually know how to get through this other than by writing. Um, so writing is also a form of, of therapy and a way of dealing with trauma for me and processing trauma. So it maybe there's some trauma that your listeners have had that they need to process through writing or that, that it might help them to explore. Um, I mean, I've written several essays and a short story based on my experiences over the, over the last year um, because you discover a lot of things. Um, I mean, and some of it's funny, you know, you know some, some of it's funny because crazy things happen when you're in cancer treatment and some of it is heartbreaking and some of it is, tedium and you know there's there's all kinds of things but there are always stories and there probably are as many cancer memoirs as there are people with cancer because we each have a different experience of it and and it forces people any kind of chronic illness or or 
possibly terminal illness forces us to confront our own mortality, um, the relationships we have with the people we love, um, you know, the fact that our time on earth is finite, um, that we may not be able to write as many books as we want to. Um, so I find that also motivating, although there are many times where I am too sick to write. Um, but when I'm well enough, um, it, it, it motivates me because I, I don't know how much time I have left. None of us do really, but a woman who fell from the sky, touched, who touched many lives, who wrote many stories, who visited many places, and who's teaching a lot of people about story ideas, not just story ideas, but also about ideas to live a good life, a better life, a fulfilled life. I have no other words to describe the woman in front of me, but it, all I can say is it's very, very inspiring, Jennifer. I've been talking to you about this interview for quite some time and I can understand that I'm not talking to a, any other ordinary woman. This woman certainly felt maybe maybe how certainly a God gift from fell from the sky to teach a lot of things, not only through her stories, but also through her life. How do people connect with you, Jennifer? How do people get hold of these writings that you have written? Um, thank you very much for your kind words, first of all. Um, people can find me at jenniferstyle.net. So you can see the spelling of my name on the screen here. So it's Jennifer and S-T-E-I-L. Um, sorry, Jennifer at jenniferstyle.net um, is my email on my website, jenniferstyle.net. And you can also find me on social media. I'm on Facebook. If you search for my name, um, my Twitter handle is at J-F as in Frank Style seven at JF style seven. And my Instagram is Jennifer F style. Um, so you can find pictures of Uzbekistan and also many cats <laughs> as well as my work. Um, so there are some of my writings are linked to on my website, jenniferstyle.net. Um, you can find my books anywhere books are sold. So the woman who fell from the sky is the book about Yemen. The ambassador's wife is a novel, it's kind of a literary thriller of sorts. Um, and Exile Music is a historical novel, as I mentioned, and you can find those on Amazon. You can find them on your in, in your independent bookstores. Um, if your local independent bookstore doesn't carry it, you can ask them to order it for you. Um, bookshop.org in, uh, in the countries that have bookshop.org carries my books. Um, so anywhere books are sold, really, you can find those. Yeah. Right, right. And my last question to you, Jennifer, is that you started for the U.S. to Yemen, and then you had many places where you lived, and you have lived at many places where you may call home. Which place would you like to call home now? Many homes, one home, U.S., uh, U.K., Uzbekistan, <laughs> Bolivia, everywhere, everywhere you have a story. That I mean... I think I call everywhere home because I do have a way of feeling at home, finding, making myself a home wherever we go. That's largely constructed of people more than anything else. Like once I have friends and connections, then I'm home. Um, and on a smaller scale, my home is my husband and daughter. And I feel like whenever I'm with my husband and daughter, that's our little bubble of home. And we are the only consistency in each other's lives. So I think that makes us particularly tight because everything else changes, but the three of us don't. Well, right now I'm apart from my family, but aside from that, um, we do have a permanent home in France though. So I suppose that is our geographic 
permanent home. Um, but I really think of it as Tim and Theodora, my husband and child. So. <laughs> right, Jennifer. Right. On this note, it's a wrap on this very special edition with the of the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure.